We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I'm going to circle back to a topic I discussed last week. The topic was sin, and I'm basically going to ask the same question that Carl Menninger, the great psychiatrist, asked in 1973. Whatever became of sin? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. Today's topic is the same as one I discussed last week. As you know, if you were listening in, I covered one of the issues that took place at the Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim, California. The Southern Baptist Convention, the largest evangelical, the most conservative evangelical denomination in the United States, at least that's what many would claim, had their annual convention where over 9,000 members were present to vote on the priorities of the convention, this group of churches, this denomination of conservative, Bible-believing, Bible-believing Christians. And one of the things that they did while they were there was engage in praise and worship, sing songs, sing hymns. One of the hymns they sang was the great classic, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, written by Isaac Watts back in the 1700s. Now, as you know, last week I covered that. I actually played the music for you so you could remember that tune. And many of you, I'm sure, uh, had um, fond memories stirred up in you as you remember singing that song, that hymn its chorus, and its several stanzas when your mother or your father or both took you to church when you were a little boy or a little girl. I'd like to talk about that more today, and I'd like to talk about this concept of sin versus mistakes. So if you didn't listen in last week, stay tuned. I'll go over the story again. I'll try to nail my critique a little bit better, a little bit tighter for you. And then I want to talk about Carl Menninger's book, the classic work that I had to read when I was an undergraduate psychology student at Spring Harbor University back in the late 70s, early 80s. Carl Menninger's work was less than a decade old at that time, and it was considered to be a very important work for a burgeoning young psychologist or psychiatrist, anybody interested in that profession or that discipline. His book was titled, Whatever Became of Sin, and as you can imagine, in the secular world of psychiatry, it really caught everyone's attention that this secularist, this man that nobody really assumed was a born-again Christian of any stripe, was bemoaning the loss of the concept of sin in our culture and calling for, oh, get ready for it, calling for repentance as one of the things that would correct the course of our nation and correct the course of our culture. Menninger was bemoaning 
He was bemoaning the loss of sin, the loss of the concept of sin in the American psyche, in Western civilization. He was saying and warning, he was prophesying, if you will, this isn't going to end well. If we diminish the idea of sin to be nothing other than a mistake, then we're not going to reap positive things from this particular ideological or sociological or psychological move to the left. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Let's take a break, and when I get back, I want to talk about mistakes and sin and why there's a difference and why we should care. I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. By the way, a little housekeeping. If you want any of the back issues the cataloged issues of the rebellion. You can find them on my website. Go to dreverettpiper.com. That's dreverettpiper.com, D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R.com. And on my website, you'll find in the menu bar several tabs. One of those tabs says podcasts. Just go to that, and you'll see all of the backlogged cataloged issues and you can access them in three different platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts. So that's the way you get any of the back issues that you can listen to, and I encourage you to do that and copy the links to your favorite episodes, post them on your social media so that your friends and family can join the rebellion. That's the way we're going to continue to increase our listenership. So thank you for doing that. If you're interested in any of my books, just click on the tab in my website, that uh, says books, and you'll go directly to Why I'm a Liberal and Other Conservative Ideas, which was my first book. My second was the national bestseller, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. And then the sequel to that, which was released a little over a year ago, is Grow Up, Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good. Another tab on my website is to schedule me to speak at your church or other organization. I'd be happy to consider that. You can contact me by clicking on that tab. The form is self-explanatory. Just fill that out. I will get it, and then I can respond to you. So just use my website. And if you're interested in my weekly columns with the Washington Times, you can see that those are cataloged there also on my website. So let's get back to the topic. The topic today is sin. I talked about it last week. Not a popular topic in the minds of many. In fact, I would guess that some of you are saying, well, this is a downer. You're you're actually going to go after it again. Yeah, I am, because I think it's very important. And apparently God thinks it's very important because this is an issue that's pervasive throughout the Bible. We see the cyclical nature of human rebellion against God, not rebellion for a just cause, but rebellion against the definition of what is just, and that is God, not you, not me, not man, but God defines what's just and what's unjust. God defines what's good and what's evil. God is the definition of right and wrong. God defines sin as being rebellion against him. So when I uh, titled my program, The Rebellion, I had some people ask me, why are you doing that? That's uh, isn't it the rebellion of man against God that is the quintessential problem of humanity? Yes, that's true. But consider the tagline of this show. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. Our rebellion today is 
is against the norm, and the norm is to water down, dumb down deviancy, to dumb down deviancy, to, to essentially whitewash human nature of the very concept of sin. And truth will shine a spotlight on that lie and expose it. And that is the only rebellion we have left, other than just marching mindlessly with the lemmings over the cliff of self-infatuation, narcissism, which seems to want to pretend that we are God and God is not. And, well, of course, all people are good at heart and nobody's really a sinner, right? Well, it's a bunch of garbage. And that's not Christian theology. It's not Christian psychology. It's not Christian ontology or epistemology. It's not any ology that is grounded in a biblical worldview. Well, it's with all of this as context that I want to remind you of what took place at the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Anaheim, California, just last week. Um, Think of what I'm going to say in the next few minutes as the difference. What's the difference between mistakes and sin? Again, context here. In the 1700s, Isaac Watts penned the lyrics to this hymn. And this hymn has stood the test of time. It's been a song sung throughout the ages and embraced by, I don't know, every denomination, really, Anabaptists and Anglicans, Catholics and Charismatics, all recognize this particular song. Uh, The meaning of the song is rich. And its premise is salvific. Its premise is salvation. Salvation implies saving you. Saving you from what? Your sins. Not, not your mistakes, your, your sins. So as I proceed here, think of the difference between the two. The title of this particular hymn, as I've already mentioned, this anthem of the church is Alas and Did My Savior Bleed. That's the official title. Again, written in the 1700s. Now, I'm going to read the first two stanzas to you again, along with the subsequent course, and I want you to listen to it. Okay, the first stanza is, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? First stanza obviously says that Jesus, our Savior, bled, our sovereign died. He devoted his sacred head for us, for a worm such as I. It elevates the Savior to the sovereign status of God the sacred status as being part of the Trinity, the triune God, God three in one, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. For who? Who did he bleed and died for? A worm, a worm such as I. Oh, some people may be listening to me right now and saying, there you go again, diminishing human beings. Um, I had a professor once when I was in undergraduate school. He had difficulty with the great hymn Amazing Grace, written by John Newton. And the reason he had difficulty with this was because there's a phrase in the hymn Amazing Grace that says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. In fact, this professor was a psychology professor. I believe he's the one who assigned me Carl Menninger's work, Whatever Became of Sin. So there's this, there's this natural reaction to not insult us, to not dumb down the human being to the status of a worm or a wretch. And there's this natural 
reaction, at least within the profession of psychology, the discipline, the discipline of psychology, to elevate the human personality rather than to diminish it. And there's this recoiling away from concepts such as human beings being wretches or worms. Okay, let's get back to the second stanza of this song. Was it for sins that I had done, he groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Those are the first two stanzas. And here's the chorus that I want you to listen to. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Okay, first two stanzas and the chorus. Now, in these few short words, Isaac Watts summarized the core message of Christianity. The burden of our heart is our sin, and the only remedy for that burden is the cross of Christ. That's, that's the simplicity of the gospel, of the core of the Christian message. And this has been the undisputed teaching of the church for 2,000 years, since the birth of Christianity. So why would any professing conservative Christian denomination presume to change that core of the gospel? Now, if you didn't know the story of the Southern Baptist Convention, and if you didn't listen to me last week, you might rightly at this point in the show be asking, well, who has changed it? What are you making such a big deal about this for? Surely no one, no one has done anything such as you describe and gone so far as to alter the basic essentials of the faith, have they? Well, uh, surprise, surprise, Exhibit A, in my case, against dumbing down deviancy to nothing but a mistake as opposed to sin comes from the 2022 annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim. This took place just last week, June 14th and 15th. As I said, about 9,000 voting members of the Southern Baptist Convention met to discuss the business of what's been called the largest evangelical denomination in the United States. This, this conference took place in California, and at this conference, they discussed many things. Uh, leadership was chosen, and leadership was rejected. Debate ensued over everything from budget priorities to clerical ordination, and they even, they even debated and discussed the definition of the pastorate. And those are important things. They're not insignificant in the least, but the thing that caught my attention, and many others, Many other Christians from around the globe, the thing that caught our attention was an event that seemed to scream of compromise, and something that didn't even appear on the conference agenda. It was just inserted relatively quietly, uh, un- maybe even unintentionally. I don't know, but it had little fanfare until afterward, and it was during a time of communal singing. Call it praise and worship, call it whatever you want, a communal singing where thousands of Southern Baptists came together to sing to their God. And the song they chose was Isaac Watts' hymn. But there, had, there, there was a minor twist. Here's the chorus that showed up on the Megatron in the Anaheim Convention Center. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my mistakes rolled away. You notice the difference? They changed one word. 
Isaac Watts's words were, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. They changed that word to mistakes. Now, why would they do that? Why would they do that? With the alteration of one simple word, the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention are apparently telling the world that the burden of our heart that Isaac Watts wrote about is not our sins, but rather just our mistakes. I'm going to say it again. The burden of our heart. What was Isaac Watts writing about? He was writing about the fact that we are as worms. He specifically and explicitly spoke of our sins. He said, for such a worm as I. And then he said, was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. But here we have the Southern Baptist Convention changing the word to mistakes. And the burden of my mistakes rolled away. Apparently, apparently, Jesus bled and died for our little oopsies and not our sins. I, I, I find this nothing short of stunning. Frankly, it's nothing short of heresy. If, if you, a simple Google search of Merriam-Webster, not to mention the Bible, will quickly show that there's a critical difference between a mistake and a sin. As I covered last week on this show, a mistake is an error in judgment. It's something done unintentionally. An example of a mistake might be turning the wrong way on a one-way street or pouring salt into your coffee when you thought it was sugar. Synonyms for the word mistake would be words such as misapprehend, misconceive, misconstrue, misinterpret, misread. These are all examples of making a mistake. Sin, on the other hand, is a very different thing. Sin is a deliberate choice to do something you know is wrong. Sin is a volitional transgression. Sin implies intentionally stepping over a boundary when you know you shouldn't. When you sin, it's not accidental. You are guilty of trespassing when you see the sign telling you not to do so, and you do it anyway. This is not like a mistake. You saw the prohibition, and you didn't care. You climbed over the fence even though you knew the property on the other side wasn't yours. A synonym for sin would be crime, iniquity, wrongdoing, evil, and wickedness. The burden of our hearts that Isaac Watts wrote about was not our mistakes. He was not referring to getting the sum wrong on a math exam He wasn't talking about turning left when the map says to turn right or sprinkling Splenda rather than salt on your eggs. No, he wasn't talking about these laughable mistakes. It's it's not for errors in human performance. Let's just, I'll use that language. It isn't for errors in our performance that our Savior bled and died. The, the crucifixion isn't about our minor goofs, our oopsies, our mistakes. It's about our abject sin. And any church leader, whether they be Southern Baptist or otherwise, who doesn't understand this is in serious need of a little education that the church used to call catechesis, a catechism, learning the truths of the faith. 
this this is nothing short of stunning, like I said. I, I think of a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said this, If we cannot weep over it, when you know you have done evil, you are no child of God. Spurgeon is shining a light on the seriousness of sin, not mistakes, not oopsies, not just, oh, I, I thought that was sugar, but it's Splenda. Oh, you know, I misread the map. I thought we were supposed to turn right at the intersection, and we turned left. Now, those aren't sins. Those are just foolish, uh, unattentive mistakes. Or, you know, I, I thought I was on my property, but there was no fence there to distinguish your property line from mine, so I stepped a foot over. I'm sorry. That was a mistake. That's a very different thing than seeing the sign and climbing the fence, knowing that you're doing wrong, knowing that your property is on your side of the fence and that someone else is on the other side, and you're supposed to stay off it, but you don't pay attention to the legal mandate to not trespass. We're talking about different things here. And the Southern Baptist Convention basically said the burden of our heart. Not basically, they did. They said the burden of our heart is our mistakes, not our sin. Now, how many of you listening to me right now weep over your mistakes? We usually laugh at our mistakes in self-deprecation. I can't believe I was so dumb as to do that. (laughs) That little white packet, I surely thought it was sugar, but it was salt. Or vice versa. We laugh at our foolishness, our mistakes. We don't weep over them. But Charles Spurgeon said this, and I'm going to say it one more time. Listen to his quote. If we cannot weep over it when you know you have done evil, you are no child of God. In fact, here's the extensive version of his quote. Then I want to give myself time to go back to Carl Menninger one more time. I don't have time to give you a long-winded explanation of Menninger, but I want you to understand what his point was in his book, Whatever Became of Sin. Back to Spurgeon before I do that, however. And then a quote from Susan Wesley. If you cannot sin and weep over it, you are an heir of hell. If you can go into sin and afterwards feel satisfied to have done so, you are on the road to destruction. If there are no prickings of your conscience, no inward torments, no bleeding wounds, if you have no throbs and and heavings of a bosom that cannot rest, if your soul never feels filled with wormwood and gall, when you know you have done evil, you are no child of God. That's Charles Spurgeon. Does it sound like he's talking about mistakes as the burden of his heart? Inward torments, bleeding wounds, throbs and heavings of a bosom that cannot rest, a soul filled with wormwood and gall, prickings of a conscience. If you feel satisfied and just blow all of that off as a simple mistake, Spurgeon is saying, you're an heir of hell and you're not a child of God. Strong medicine? Yeah, it is. But this is the teaching of the church. This is the teaching of a church that finds the Bible to be inerrant and sufficient, which is what the Southern Baptist Convention still claims. 
Susanna Wesley, the mother of Charles and John Wesley, said this, Whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things. Whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. By implying that something is an innocent mistake rather than egregious sin, you're missing the point. And you're looking away from God rather than toward him. As Charles Spurgeon so aggressively said, you are an heir of hell and you are no child of God if you don't weep, if you don't weep over your sins rather than laugh and chuckle about your mistakes. Uh, Let's conclude with Carl Menninger. Here's what he says in his book, Whatever Became of Sin. He says this in chapter 3, The Disappearance of Sin, an eyewitness account. Again, remember that he wrote this in 1973, and he wrote it as a premier psychiatrist, one of the leaders of his profession at that time. This was a seminal work that was assigned to college students majoring in psychology. This book was assigned across the nation. He says this in chapter 3, In all of the laments and reproaches made by our seers and prophets of our time, one misses any mention of sin. It was a word once in everyone's mind, but now rarely, if ever heard. Does that mean that there is no sin involved in the troubles that we face? Uh, Where indeed did sin go, he asks. What became of it? Many would not concede that he even committed a sin or even made a mistake, says Menninger. He goes on. I want you to listen to this. He says, every slayer can find reasons for making his particular violation an exception, a non-crime, if not a non-sin. We'll just call it a mistake. Hitler had his reasons for killing the Jews. Custer had his reasons for killing the Sioux. Is nothing now a sin? The very word, he says, the very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and a serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion of sin. Why? Why doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? Now that's the question I want you to be thinking of as we conclude this show. And I want you to be thinking of that question. Doesn't anyone believe in sin? As you think back to the Southern Baptist Convention, happily singing of the burden of their mistakes being rolled away, rather than as Charles Spurgeon said, weeping over their sin with their soul filled with wormwood and gall as they seek forgiveness from God. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.